Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit. It's been a few weeks uh, since I've preached here, and uh, we are back in our sermon series on the Letter to the Hebrews. The series is titled, Jesus Christ Above All Things. And um, I realize that my sermon topic could perhaps be a bit confusing, especially since Bob's like confused by it. Um, the, series, the sermon is titled, Stirred Not Shaken. Now, um, I'm not gonna teach you how to make a James Bond martini, in fact, he likes his shaken, not stirred. So there we go. Um, rather, the title has to do with um, our passage. In our passage, the writer shows us how the old covenant worshipers um, were trembling and shaking in God's presence, and that one day also that God will shake the heavens and bring about an unshakable kingdom to come. And then he shows us that, that a Christian is someone who isn't shaken but rather someone who is stirred by God's grace uh, to love him and to worship him. Now, I lost you already? I hope not. Um, the passage is Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made their hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then you must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. In some ways, um, the language and the circumstances are a bit foreign, perhaps. Um, we pray that as this text is explained, we would see all the more why our lives are to be entrusted to your care, um, that you are the good God who will shake this earth one day, but because of Christ, we will remain unshaken, and we belong in that place. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When my wife Leslie was in college, she experienced a really um, 
something really funny in one of her lectures. You know those giant lecture halls, like it's Biology 101, there's like 200, 250 students, it's like stadium seating, and like the professor's like way down there in front of some dry erase board. Well, partway through the lecture, a guy gets up to leave, and he tries to sneak out. He didn't want the professor to see him. And so he waits for the professor to turn his back to the students, and he starts shuffling past the row of students. But halfway down the row, another student shouts, this class sucks, I'm out of here. <laughs> My kids are like, I'm gonna use that, okay. I mention this story because I know the topic before us this morning, that of worshiping God, is one where we have a tendency, at least figuratively, to close our notebooks, to grab our backpacks, and head for the exits. Worship. It sounds boring. I beg to differ. See, every human being is a worshiper. Scripture tells us that we will either worship God or we will worship some sort of God substitute. We will either worship the creator or we will worship something within his creation. So please understand this truth. Our lives are bent towards whatever we believe will give us our greatest happiness in life. When I was in my 20s, I worshiped at the altar of success in the business world. I wanted everybody to look at me and be envious of how great my company was that I started. As my company grew, guess what? So did my pridefulness. And as my pridefulness grew, I worshiped even more at the altar of success. At the time, I didn't see it that way. I thought my success was serving me, but really, I was bowing down and serving it. So what about you? What do you worship? What is your life bent towards? Scripture calls them idols. Usually they're not bad things in and of themselves, things like career and family and comfort and security. But they become bad when we elevate them to where? Savior status. My career will save me, or my finances will save me, this relationship will save me. The trouble is you think they serve you, but actually you serve them. One warning sign is anxiety. Anxiety is a sign that some functional God in your life is not meeting your expectations. Another sign is, a warning sign is character flaws. Think about it, if you bow to the idol of financial security, then likely you will have a character flaw called stinginess. So every human being is a worshiper. We worship every day, not just on Sunday. You will either worship your creator, or you'll worship something within his creation, and there is no avoiding it. Now, most of us here are Christians. Our problem is that we can tend to be like that original audience to which the writer is writing. If you remember the context, the author has spent the last couple chapters encouraging them to endure with faith through all these hardships and trials that they were experiencing. See, when we hit difficult circumstances, the temptation is to stop bending towards God. As we see in our passage, worship flows from gratitude. 
Listen, you will worship what you believe will make you most gratified. And so if you're unhappy with the circumstances that God is allowing in your life right now, then you will tend to be ungrateful towards God, right? And chances are you will look for something or someone other than God to rescue you and bring about your desired reality. And whatever that is, that is what you will worship. In our passage, the writer challenges this church or group of churches that he loves to see the amazing work of God in their lives, how God has worked on their behalf, and therefore, as a result, to respond with gratitude in lives of worship. Verse 28 is pretty much our main proposition. I don't have to write one. It's there in our text, 28 and 29. It says, therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're going to look at this proposition under two headings. First is the unshakable mountain of grace, and then the unshakable people of grace. First, the unshakable mountain. You know, the author uses imagery to show us that Christ has taken us up a mountain of God's grace. We see this in verse 22 when he writes, but you have come to Mount Zion. And then he describes this amazing reality of what that looks like and means for us as Christians. But before he brings us to Mount Zion, he begins by saying where we have not come to. And what is it? Well, he doesn't name the mountain, but he's speaking about Mount Sinai. In this text, the writer compares Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. Now, Mount Sinai is what? That's the mountain upon which God gave his people through Moses the Ten Commandments. Mount Zion, on the other hand, was the central part of Jerusalem, the city. It was captured by King David. It was the site of the first great temple. But the Mount Zion that's being spoken of in our passage is is the heavenly Mount Zion. That earthly Mount Zion pointed to the heavenly reality. And what we see in our passage is a stark contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, between Moses and Jesus, between the law and the gospel. In verses 18 through 21, we read of Mount Sinai, and it's terrifying, right? It's pretty scary. It's blazing fire, it's darkness and gloom, a tempest, trumpet sounds, scary voices. Picture in your mind the the scenes of Mordor, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, right? Now, what should strike you as you read these accounts is an apparent contradiction, at least from our modern, politically correct, watered-down view of God these days. So, So God heard the cry of his beloved people in Egypt, and he sent Moses as mediator to go get them and to bring them out and take them into the promised land, and then herein lies the contradiction. Then God came to speak to them, And his very presence causes fear and trembling in his people. And so I think this is where we lose a lot of people. People today say, I really don't know if there is a God, but one thing I know for sure, uh, he wouldn't be fearful. (laughs) He'd be warm and fuzzy. Uh, He would be approachable. You know, we moderns are pretty good at telling God who he can and cannot be, aren't we? That being said, let's look at some of the details of Mount Sinai so then we can focus on Mount Zion. First, the writer says, you have not come to what may be touched. I mean, you could touch Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, but it wouldn't be a good thing. 
when a person came to Mount Sinai, which was the holy mountain of the law, there was a separation between God and man, separation made because of our sin and God's beautiful holiness. Second, it says the mountain was a blazing fire. A number of years back, my mother bought one of those fake fireplaces, you know, the box that you plug into the wall. <laughs> it's meant to fool you into thinking that you're really sitting next to a real fire. Take the remote and you can turn the heat up and down and all you hear is just this slight little rumble of a fan. She likes it. She wouldn't like Mount Sinai and neither would we. The fire on Sinai was menacing, it was terrifying. Third, the writer says there was darkness. So terrifying was the darkness and the gloom and the tempest that when the trumpet sounded and the voice from heaven spoke, how did the people respond? The hearers begged that, that they wouldn't have to hear God directly anymore. They told Moses to speak on their behalf. You go, Moses, they said. It's like in the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, where nobody wanted to go near Boo Radley's house. Phillips, in his commentary, says this. To get the full effect, we have to rattle these items off one after another, the way the writer of Hebrews does. The mountain is roped off. It is a blazing, dark, gloomy, and storm-ridden. From it blast trumpets and a voice that makes the people beg it to stop lest they die. Even their spiritual leader Moses, a true giant of the faith, cried out, I tremble with fear. This is the mountain to which Israel had been brought, having been delivered from bondage of Egypt. But that's the Mount Sinai that we have not come to, my friends. Now in verse 22, it tells us that Christ has taken us somewhere. Christ has taken us to an unshakable mountain, a mountain of God's grace. N.T. Wright makes this point. At the center of the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is a contrast between a holiness which is terrifying and unapproachable and a holiness which is welcoming, cleansing, and healing. Now, we need to be careful we don't fall into a common mistake. Some tend to believe, including some Christians, that in the New Testament, we get a softer, kinder, gentler God. But the God of the Old Testament, he's mean and harsh, but thankfully he grew up and he saw the errors of his ways, and now he's nice. Researchers have studied how small children lack awareness of facial expressions and how they must develop the ability to distinguish facial expressions over time. Here's what one researcher, how, how she describes it. She says, children's understanding of facial expressions is poor and changes qualitatively and slowly over the course of development. Initially, children divide facial expressions into two simple categories, all facial expressions into two categories. It feels good, it feels bad. Happy or sad. These broad categories then, gra um, then gradually uh, differentiate until adulthood, and, and, and they develop discrete categories, and usually takes place in the teen years. So here's what they did. You show a small child a picture of an angry person, and he or she will say, he's sad. A curious person, 
he's happy. A surprised person, sad. I'd like to suggest that a person who says the God of the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is loving suffers from a similar lack of development. See, the gospel doesn't offer us a watered-down or weakened God. But rather, as the writer said earlier in Hebrews, remember where the writer said, in Christ, listen, in Christ, a new and living way has been opened up. Or let me put it this way. Christ doesn't bring us to a different God. He brings to God a different us. Christ doesn't bring us to a different God. He brings to God a different us. N.T. Wright helps to see that those who have been brought to this heavenly Mount Zion didn't have God's standards lowered. He says, Those who live in the city are not those who have simply been told to come as they are, but those in whom the lavish grace of God has worked such a cleansing, such transformation, that they now belong, albeit by sheer grace, within the holy city itself. So this unshakable mountain of grace is described in verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's break that down so we may grow in gratitude for what Christ, our mediator, has done. First, look at the joy on this mountain of grace. The writer says in verse 22 that we've come to a place of innumerable angels in festal gatherings. That means they're happy, right? On Mount Sinai, it was those very angels who were blaring trumpets, stoking the fires. They were the ones who were cloaked in darkness, in gloom. But now the author says that upon the mountain of grace, these angels are now a joyful, welcoming party, inviting us to join their glad worship of the Lord. Second, in the heavenly city, we see that it is referred to um, as the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Remember, if you're in Christ, whether you're male or female, your status is that of firstborn son. Remember, we call this doctrine sonship. The firstborn eldest son was marked off from birth to receive the lion's share of the inheritance. And so you too, if you're in Christ, Christ's firstborn son's status is bestowed upon you as a gift of God's grace. It's amazing, right? Third, the writer says that if you're in Christ, your name is enrolled in heaven. Now, when Moses brought the people to Mount Sinai, he had to write down on paper or, you know, his iPad. Um, he was instructed to enroll all the names of everybody there in the, in the annals of the nation. Christian, be grateful that your name is enrolled in heaven by, bir- by virtue of your faith in Christ. And it can never be erased. You belong there. Fourth, not only are the people of God enthroned on this mountain, but it's no surprise that God is there himself. Can't overlook that fact. In verse 23, the writer says that you have come to God. 
the judge of all. Whereas at Mount Sinai, the people stayed at the bottom of the mountain. You understand that? They stayed at the bottom. They couldn't go up to God. They were shaking down there in fear. Here our writer says that we have come to God. Christ has brought us up Mount Zion, the mountain of God's grace, into God's very presence. Now perhaps you're thinking, but Mark, the writer says we have come to God, the judge of all. Doesn't that contradict your assessment? A judging God who sees all things, knows our sin, knows everything. What a chilling reality. I'm not so sure I'd want to be there. But the point here is quite the opposite of condemnation. Christ brings us up his mountain of God's grace, and God does sit in judgment, but not in judgment for our condemnation, but rather for our vindication. Think about it, like the gymnastics judge who holds up the scorecard and it's a perfect 10. That's what's going on here. God Almighty, listen, the rightful judge of all things is holding up a perfect 10 score over your life. Now, how is this possible? The next words of our text speak of God having made his people righteous through the much better blood of Jesus. Who are these spirits of the righteous made perfect that the writer speaks of in verse 23? They're everyone who's died over the years in God's grace and whose spirits are now separated from their bodies in the grave, and, but they are present with God in heaven. They are in this great assembly right now. Perhaps you know of people who are already there. They are there in God's presence, awaiting the day that God makes all things new. And then they will be given new and glorious bodies when Christ returns. And how are they made perfect? Christ's blood. It speaks on their behalf. The writer states that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of, an, of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what is he getting at? The writer says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What does he mean? Well, remember Cain and Abel, they were the sons of Adam and Eve, and it didn't take very long. Cain kills Abel, and Abel's blood is spilt on the ground, and God goes and tracks down Cain, and he told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood spoke and cried out for vengeance, but the blood of Christ, however, pleads our forgiveness, and it speaks peace to mankind. Now, lastly, I think a marvelous aspect of this passage comes to light when we study the grammar. The author says, you have come. It's past tense. He doesn't say, you will one day come, or even you are coming. No, he says, you have come. Christian, this is your present reality. In some mystical way, by the work of the Spirit, this, you have been brought up this mountain of God's grace. You have arrived at his unshakable mountain. The writer is going to great lengths, lengths to get us to delight in this. God has brought us up, and he has brought us in. And this changes everything, right? Think about it. 
even in the most excruciating, painful trial on earth that tempts you to stop bending towards God, you are able to rejoice because of this truth, that you have come to God, that you belong on his heavenly mountain of grace. Because of Christ's work for you, God, God is holding up that perfect 10 score over your life. And because of this, we are so grateful. And in our lives lean all the more in towards God and towards Christ, towards his kingdom. And he gives us joy in the midst of our trials. Our second point is shorter, quite a bit shorter than the first, if you're keeping score. Not only has God brought us to an unshakable mountain of grace, he has made us into an unshakable people of grace. What do I mean? Well, the writer calls the readers to recognize that though God will one day judge this fallen world and all who have lived in it, including you and me, those who belong to Christ will not be shaken on that day. In verse 25, the writer says, in light of this good news that Christ has brought us to God's unshakable mountain of grace, the, he says, see that you do not refuse him who's speaking, right? Don't hear these words of God and say, that's not for me. He's saying, don't be like those ancient Israelites in Moses' day who, who turned from God's voice. They refused to listen and believe and be grateful and worship God joyfully. Instead, they worship false idols, their lives bent in a different direction. The writer then says in verse 26 that as God's voice shook the earth back then, so too he will shake it, not only the earth though, but heaven itself, the heavenly realms. What does he mean? Well, he explains in verse 27 where he writes, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken in order that all things that cannot be shaken may remain. All throughout Scripture, God has promised a once and for all renewal and restoration of the entire cosmos, a final setting to right everything that's been wrong. As Tolkien wrote, God will make everything sad come untrue. He will rightly judge everything in creation. Is it holy unto me, or is it fuel for the fire? Now, there are many who wrinkle their noses at Christianity. They are appalled at any conception of a God that is condemning. It's ironic. It's actually, do you notice the hypocrisy? They condemn any God who is condemning. <laughs> now, please understand, God isn't going to shake you, judge you, and remove you from his glorious kingdom because you cheated on your taxes that one year you got the big bonus. God isn't going to sentence you to eternity without him because one night you slept with a girl you hardly knew and then callously never called her back. No, God will judge you because what all these behaviors point towards, a life of building your identity and worth upon anything but God, a life bent in any direction but towards him, a life of looking for your career, your relationships, or whatever, to save you. Listen, ultimately, you either delight in God and live in grateful worship of him, or you will worship anything other than God. And so understand this. 
those who bend their lives away from God in this present age will get their wish for all eternity. I'd like to read a couple of quotes from C.S. Lewis that help press this point and then close with some encouragement. In his uh, classic fictional account of heaven and hell titled The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis has this scene where there's this heavenly tour bus operator who drives those who are now in hell up near the entrance of heaven. And he presents them with an opportunity to travel to heaven and be there permanently. At one point, the narrator, narrator asks his teacher if, if everyone has a chance to get on the bus to heaven. He replies with these words, listen. Everyone who wishes it does, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And then the quote from the problem of pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. Listen. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To, to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and, and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so on the cross. What are, you, what are you asking God to do? Forgive them? They will not be forgiven. What are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. The point our writer is making is, is that though God will shake all things, including all people, including you and me, through Christ, we have unshakability. And through Christ, this promised future in which beauty and righteousness and holiness remain, that day to come is ours in Christ. Listen, God, God has not changed. He remains a consuming fire. Christ doesn't bring us to a different God. He brings to God a different us. And us who has been ever, forever cleansed of sin and made righteous. And this is God's gift to you. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. What type of language is the word receiving? It's the language of gift giving. God has gifted us, you, with an unshakability. And he's placed us in his unshakable kingdom to come. The verb is in the present tense. It's a present tense participle, which means it's a currently, we're currently in the process of receiving this gift. And so the prospect of one day fully receiving God's gift is meant to give us joy and a gratitude in the present. And it's, therefore, it's meant to stir us up towards acceptable worship of God, which includes reverence and awe. Remember, our lives are bent towards whatever we believe will, will give us greatest happiness in this life. That is what worship is. It's living for that which our lives are bent towards. Worship is not something you do for one hour on a Sunday. Your entire life is a life of worship of something. 
Today we've been shown how wonderful God has been towards us in Christ. As scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or we could put it another way. While our lives were bent away from God, Christ bent himself towards us in love. The righteous for the unrighteous. Our greatest happiness is to be found in him and nowhere else. For there is no greater source of life or joy or meaning or purpose that you could ever bend your life towards. Young people here, just believe us on that one. <laughs> Save yourself some time and energy and false worship. Trust your life to Christ. That's why the writer calls us to bend our lives towards the only source of true happiness in life. That is our main proposition today. That's what we're going to end with. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we need not fear or tremble in your presence, that Christ has opened up for us a new and living way into your presence. We've been forever changed, adopted, brought into your family, given hope and meaning and purpose. May we today commit all the more to lean towards you, to bend our lives in your direction so that your goodness may flow through us, we pray. Amen.